My friend, my prophet, the thunder man is going to come and share the word. Let's give it up for Greg. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good evening, everybody. Who's glad they came tonight just for the worship and that prophetic word? Yeah. I want to just say, you know, God is life. And Tondo was prophesying life. That God is a fountain of life. And the reality of that fountain of life is we get to drink as much as we want to. And so I want to exhort you, if that moment blessed your heart, what you need to do is you need to learn how to drink from the fountain of life. Not just come once every three months to church when you're all broken and dusty and dry and bits of you have fallen off. But every day, every hour, every minute, every second, this, if you need it or if you don't, become people who know how to drink deep of the fountain of life. Don't miss God. So we're going to complete the uh, Colossians series that we've been running. Who's been enjoying that? Who feels like you have a whole lot of new words to put onto words with friends now? Gnosticism, asceticism, syncretism. If you don't know what those words are, you weren't paying attention. Um, just to say that I am going to basically do a summary of what we've spoken about and just give some thoughts that came to me I was looking at it. The reason for that is because if you read chapter 4 of Colossians, it literally starts off with be kind to your slaves and pray and then a whole lot of greetings. So that doesn't really leave a lot of deep <laughs> theological understanding. So um, I will allude to chapter 4 as we go through. Jesse's finding that funny. The rest of you are not getting that at all. So my key scripture for tonight is Colossians chapter 3, verse 14. And it says this, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And that's what love does. Love binds everything together in perfect harmony. Know that I think that Paul's whole purpose in writing this book was to show the Christians of Colossae the perfect, pure, lavish love that was poured out of them, poured out on them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was reminding them that you are loved more than you could ever imagine, and there's absolutely nothing you did for it. Earlier in the series, Pastor Roger was talking about the error of Gnosticism, which is the ridiculous idea that there is a higher level of knowing, that if only you can garner this knowledge, we will then somehow be spiritually superior and closer to God or whatever. It's nonsense. What Paul tells us in the book of Colossians is that spiritual maturity is right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Hold that for a minute. Mature spirituality is right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. See, all the knowledge we could possibly ever need has already been freely and widely given to anyone who will say yes, Jesus. And this is kind of the problem of the gospel for us, is just how simple it is. Every single Christian is on the same path. If you gave your life to Jesus 10 minutes ago, and you meet somebody who's been a Christian for 80 years, you are in exactly the same path. They may have a lot more experience. They may know God a little better than you, but they are doing exactly the same things as you should be doing. 
I love the fact that Christianity is the only religion I know that perfects the basics. It never graduates out of the basics. And this is the lie of Gnosticism. There's something else out there. You know what the problem is? Sometimes as people, we get bored. <laughs> and that's our own fault. Have you ever seen God? I find myself getting bored. I'm going to be honest, JC, I do. Sometimes in church and worship, I get bored. But I've been around, I've been walking this path for 30 years now. I got born again at the tender age of 15, and I'm 45. And so occasionally I get a little bored. But what I've learned is when I get bored, it's because I've stopped looking at God. When I get bored, it's because I've stopped looking at the most amazing thing in the entire universe that captures the imagination, that grabs a hold of our souls like a fire and doesn't let go. And so when I get bored, all that's happened is I've moved my eyes. Philippians 2 verse 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, obeyed so, so now, not only as in my present but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying, you have always obeyed. Guess what? All you need to do is keep obeying. <laughs> this means that no matter how mature we may become, we never graduate from the basics of Christianity. And what are the basics relating to God? You know that everything God has ever done in the whole history of the world is about connecting us to him. He made man because he wanted to connect with man. And from the second they sinned, everything he has done has been to get us back into right relationship with himself. And that happens through the gospel of Jesus Christ. What that means is, is that we never stop reading our Bible. <laughs> Some of you have. <laughs> That's okay, Jesus loves you. You can start at any moment. I grew up Baptist, and the one thing we definitely got right in the Baptist church was we read our Bibles. Sometimes we read it so much that we forgot what it meant, but any case. So I was about nine years old when I embarked on my first Bible cover to cover in our Sunday school. It was the children's version, and it was simple, but we read through all the important stories. They left out a lot of, of the book of Judges, which later on I discovered was a little um, PG. In fact, it was very PG. Um, so it was very good that they left that out for nine-year-olds. But I have read the Bible, and I'm, there's no bragging in this, but maybe like 10, 11 times through from cover to cover in, you know what I mean, just in one here or whatever. And I read my Bible many times a week because even having done that, it gave me a beautiful context of the word, but the word of God is living. It is living. It means that every time I read it, there is a potential for God to speak something fresh and new. And it's not weird gnosis. It's the same word that just comes more and more alive as the seasons of my life change. There are things I need to know as a 45-year-old that no 25-year-old would ever care to understand. You know? And so... As you grow in God, as you mature, as the seasons of your life unfold, we don't give up the basics. We never, ever graduate from A, reading the Bible, B, believing the Bible, and C, obeying it. <laughs> I, show me any Christian who has graduated from any three of those, I will show you a cult leader. It is as simple as that. <laughs> You're laughing because you know it's true. We never stop praying. 
We never stop worshiping. We never stop fellowshipping. What we are doing here tonight, laughing together. You know, when we sang together, I am a child of God, that revelation of, yes, I am your child, but so is she and so is he. We're all children of God. That means we're brothers and sisters. It just was blowing my mind. I mean, I know that, but again, the word of God. I am a child of God, but so are you. So guess what? Some of you don't like me. Tough luck, I'm your brother. Fellowshipping is spiritual. And the Bible says, do not forsake the gathering of the saints. Why? Because then we get into a weird space where I read a book and saw a picture and put them together and I believe this and we no longer practice this and I can have multiple wives and I can fraud the government. Because <laughs> you stopped fellowshipping and you got weird. We never stop repenting of dead works. Now hear what I'm saying. Part of what I'm discovering at 45 is things I repented for in, in my 20s. Now I understand that there's still the subtle space where I act them out. I've got really good at believing them, but I'm still not practicing righteousness. And so every day I realize there's a space where I have to repent of some dead works in my life. And we never ever stop believing fully in and applying the gospel of Jesus Christ to our lives. Christian maturity cannot and must not be based just on our knowledge or our experiences. I'll talk about that more at the end, but what I want to say about it now is that our only judgment of our maturity is the depth of our love and relationship with God and our submission to Him as a Father. See, adolescents rebel and climb out windows and steal cars and, and steal drink from dad's cabinet. Mature sons and daughters know who they are in the house, know what their rights are because they're busy getting responsible with what they need to be responsible for. Does that make sense to you? And so Christian maturity isn't just about knowing a whole bunch of stuff. I sometimes wish God wasn't as lavish in the way he gifts us. I wish that there was kind of this indication that when your gift started crashing and burning, you knew it was because there was attitude or sin or something, and then you repented, and then your gift came up again. So be very thankful I'm not God. But, <laughs> but God doesn't work like that. But what I learned very early on in my life is just because I'm anointed doesn't mean I'm right with God. Well, yeah, let me say that again. Just because I'm anointed doesn't mean I'm right with God. One of the reasons for that is because God will anoint me for other people. Then I'm walking around thinking, man, I'm good, and God's just rolling his eyes because the only reason he's anointing me is because other people need that gift to flow. I'm, I'm sucking, <laughs> but they have faith, and so they're drawing my gift out of me. But all I can judge, a gift is not me. A gift is entirely from God. And I've realized if I make the gift the reason I'm here, I'm missing God. I don't know him. The whole point of Christianity is knowing God. And we hate this because the reality of God is that if we never did anything for him, if all we did was sit on the ground and just know him, that would be enough for him. God doesn't really need any of us. He made all of us because he wants us. I'll talk about that more in a moment. And he gives us purpose and destiny. And then he asks us to come and partner with him. But if we refuse that, the world isn't going to end. God will just raise up somebody else to do it. There's somebody else out there saying yes. Let's all say yes. Let's all be amazing. But God doesn't need you. You get to partner with him. Yes, 
The issue of maturity is about relationship, and this is something I have realized. <laughs> My relationship with God can be really good until I start integrating with other people, until I start interacting with other human beings, and then suddenly my maturity is tested yet again, because this is how clever God is. The test of my maturity isn't just how I feel about Him, it's about how I interact with other people. And I honestly believe that I would be the world's best Christian if I was the only human on this planet. <laughs> and you all know what I mean. But we are called to have a loving relationship with God. And the more loving our relationship with God is, the more loving our relationship with others will be. And God sets that standard. The cross speaks of that. It speaks of relationship with God and then relationship with others. And sometimes we fool ourselves. God, I love you so much, but these other idiots. <laughs> God, if that girl wasn't so hot. God, if my boss wasn't so mean. See, it's got nothing to do with other people. Who are you before God? Who is God to you? Do you know him? Have you asked him lately what he thinks about something? Especially your heart, your life, your attitude, your decisions. Who is God? What is his heart? He does not hide it from us. Okay, he kind of does, but he hides it so we will go after it. He doesn't hide it so we'll never find it. That was that whole illusion as we've been talking about the fact that as a parent, when your three-year-old uh, comes to Easter and you start hiding Easter eggs, you don't hide them where they will never find them. There's no fun in that for anybody. You've just got sobbing kids. Hey, Marsha, and that's, no parent wants that. And so there's a space where God hides himself, but so we will go after him and we will find him. And so... The true test of my relationship with God is how I deal with the next person I meet. How much love, grace, mercy, long-suffering, insight do I have? Because then I need to go back to God and say, okay, Lord, show me who you are again. And this kind of relates back to the, the discussion Michael and Pastor Roger had about legalism, or as the book of Colossians calls it, Judaizing. And that's basically just the idea that we make all kinds of laws and extra laws that then prove our righteousness. If, if I show way less mercy to myself and to others than God does, all it means is that somewhere in my heart, I haven't let love come and bind everything together in perfect harmony. All it means is somewhere I've missed God. And, and the problem is, is that we don't have mercy on ourselves because we think God is angry with us. We think he wants to punish us. So then we do it ourselves first before he gets a chance. And then we try and show him. You see what I do? I, I feel really bad. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I hurt myself there. I sacrificed for you. Whatever it is. But then that's how we treat other people. You know, the Bible says that we should love others as we love ourselves. And there's a preacher called Mike Bickle who says that's exactly the problem with the world today is Christians do love others like they love themselves. That we are so harsh on ourselves and then we expect to show grace on somebody else. And this is the challenge. You see, God, God shows us our own hearts to ourselves. We hate that. That's the worst thing. Looking at somebody else who's broken and shattered, I'll have a lot more mercy on them sometimes than when I see my own self. But we keep trying to fix it ourselves, and this is the problem. Why did God send Jesus? Because he was more than enough. And all of us sit with something that we're trying to fix. We're trying to make it good enough so that we can give it back to God. 
So let me help you tonight. It never, ever will be. The Bible says that any attempt you make at righteousness is just a filthy, stinking rag. Jesus is the only righteousness that is available to us and the only righteousness that God will accept. So why are we working so hard? Why are we striving? Why are we making all these rules that we can't even keep? It's almost like we're doing this thing where, well, you see, I can't keep that rule. Well, you see, that's why God won't love me. That's what it's about. I know you people. I'm one of you. I've done this. I do this. Colossians 1:16 to 20, this beautiful description of the preeminence of Christ. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All things were created through him and for him. I highlighted that in that portion. Just think about that. All things were made through him and for him. <laughs> Do you understand that that means you and I were made through him and for him? And the very next person we will meet on the street, it's true for them as well. They might just not, not know it yet. And I want to tell you tonight that the only reason you exist on the earth today is because he wanted you here. There is no other reason. I don't care how you came to be. I don't care what the situation of your conception or your birth was. I don't care how glorious or how shameful. There is only one reason you are here tonight, because your father wanted you. You are here by his desire, wrought by his love. You are wanted, and you are seen, and you are heard. He took the time and effort to make you just the way you are. Because everything, it says all things, not all things but you. All things are made through him and for him. That means that every one of you carry the fingerprints of God on your soul. That means that every single one of you has a dream that was birthed in heaven that you are going to steward. And there is not another person on this planet who will steward exactly that dream. It's up to you whether you will or not. And God's so generous, so gracious, he just gives it away free. You get to decide. <laughs> what this means is that God doesn't just love you. He likes you. See, some of you don't even know God loves you. A lot of you are definitely convinced God doesn't like you. But that tells me, because I've been there, is just that you don't like yourself. That you're despising yourself. See, God doesn't make things he doesn't like. God isn't some random freak where he, like, he makes 27 pots and then, oh, well, now I've made it. Darn it. <laughs> I wish it wasn't orange. <laughs> God is not like that. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. 
And just think about the diversity of this world. Like, snakes and spiders, honestly, I don't understand. Like, <laughs> but there are people on this planet who find them exquisitely beautiful, who study them, who then take pictures. And when I look at the picture, I'm going, that spider is really pretty. I never need to see it. It can just stay in the Amazon all by itself. I never, ever need to interact with it. But they love it. What does that mean? Well, God created snakes and spiders because he thought they were beautiful because he thinks they're kind of cool. And then he created a whole bunch of people who would join him in just being absolutely amazed at how stunning snakes and spiders are. I am not one of that tribe. Don't bring your snakes and spiders to me. Are you getting what I'm saying? You are not random. You are not accidental. And the challenge for us from the book of Colossians is that through the gospel, we have to understand that God is going to love us. Whether we want it or not, whether we feel worthy or not, he is simply going to love us because that is the choice he has made. So some of us need to put up our hands and say, okay, I'm going to just let you love me. And just like we need to learn to drink from the final of life, we need to learn to let God love us. A lack of love in our life causes endless addictions, endless unhealthy patterns, endless broken relationships. No matter how healthy you are, every one of us carry the space where we don't think we're lovable. And I just see God rolling his eyes. Like, what more must I do? I mean, my son hung naked and dripped out all his blood to say I love you. And this is the problem with the gospel. It is so simple. It is so simple that it absolutely catches our imagination. But when we look at how simple it is, you just go to Jesus and then everything's sorted. We can't hold it. There's nothing else in our life that is that simple. We have to manipulate and beg and plead and pretend that we don't need and desperately need and make all kinds of plans to get what we want. But God is just not like that. God has never played a game in his life. There is no manipulation in him at all. He is so starkly honest that he startles the hell out of us, literally, because we don't know how to respond to that. He's so healthy that when we come around him, our unhealth just explodes. <laughs> Because none of our coping mechanisms, none of our manipulative secrets work with God. And they never, ever will. And so when it comes to the gospel, this is why syncretism exists. Because then we feel like we have to add or subtract or make a few more hoops or make another 300 rules. So that we'll be good enough to, to receive it. The gospel is simple. I wish it was more complicated. I wish it had 92 boxes you could tick and one of them had to be climbing Everest because then there'd be an excuse why I'm not good enough. And that's exactly the point. All we're trying to do is say, okay, so that's why I can't be involved. See, God made it so simple that it is absolutely universal. Not one person is exempt. But what are we gonna do with it? The gospel confronts us. The gospel offends us. Surely there must be something more. Surely not just everybody can get it. And this is the issue with Colossians. They are starting to think, well, some of us are better than others, surely, because I see the sin in that one's life. I don't do that. I must have better knowledge. Let me share it with everybody, and then they too can ascend the higher levels. No. It then says, and through him, 
to reconcile to himself all things. Again, all things. I actually looked that word up. The, the Greek word for reconcile is a very long word. It means to reconcile fully. <laughs> so what that means is it's not to reconcile everything but you. All things. Look at your neighbor and say, you are part of all things. You need to say it like white people say in Kandla. Ne? All things. Yeah, you're laughing because you know it's true. <laughs> we do. They're kind of cool. Um, so the word reconcile in English means to bring into agreement or harmony, to make compatible or consistent. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has brought you back fully into agreement and harmony with God. And that is why it says he made peace by the blood of the cross. Fully reconciled. He reconciled. The preeminent Christ of the universe reconciled you and me. It's done. Why are you striving? The whole issue of peace. Do you know that the English word peace means an absence of striving? If you are already in harmony and agreement, why are we going on like we do? Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are at peace with God. At least he is at peace with us, but we aren't always that sure. What more is there to do if Jesus left anything undone on the cross, that would mean that only a special few could ever make it into heaven. And that is not his heart. I love that song. The worship team stole this line from me. We are no longer far off, but right up against his heart. No longer slaves, but friends. And no longer slaves, but sons. The simplicity of the gospel is compelling. It literally is too good to be true, but it is. And this is something I've realized. There are persuasive teachings. There are persuasive reasons. There are persuasive arguments why we should add this to the gospel or subtract that from it, why it should rather be this way or that way. Hebrew scholars for thousands of years have argued about this and wrote 663 daily rules that any good from Jew has to absolutely obey to be a Jew. <laughs> we can't even keep the 10 that are in the Bible. <laughs> but the gospel is compelling. Jesus is compelling. And you get the difference between persuasive and compelling. Persuasive, it sounds good, and then I start giving heed to it, and then I start listening, and then I'm going there. But then I run into Jesus, and I realize, this is nonsense. This man, I can't get him out of my head. This man, he does not make sense. This man is just all over my space. So will I then push into more persuasive arguments, or will I just strip naked and say, you're God? And what you do and what you say is true. If we will simply let him be who he is, we will find Jesus utterly compelling. And if we will simply believe and live from the simplicity of the gospel, we will make him compelling to others. We complicate it up. And then when our friends ask us what we believe, when our nephews ask us why we pray, <laughs> well done, Deval. 
We don't know what to say. Simple. Jesus Christ was born, and he lived and obeyed every rule of God, and he pleased God, and he gave away all his Godhead, and he was just a human under the submission to the Holy Spirit. And he pleased God so much, but he was so pure and holy that he had to die, because somebody had to die. So he did. So he lived the life we should have lived, and then he died the death we should have died. But God was so good, he brought him back to life. And now we can just stand in his righteousness. We just, I love how simple the gospel is. You believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth. Hey, presto. <laughs> of course, once we've done that, there's responsibility. Once we've done that, we hold freedom and we have to make choices. But that is as simple as it is. And we need to start making the gospel compelling to others. But may you be confronted by Jesus and find him compelling first. And then we spoke about this whole idea of asceticism. And this is this crazy space as well where the idea is that your body's evil and all the problem is your body. So you beat your body and you damage your body and you exercise until you go into trances and you, you break your body. And basically you just suffer and suffer and suffer until you're good enough to find God. And everybody in this room is going, I never do that. Well, some of you are on banting and go to gym a lot, but, you know, we, we're not going to say that's a spiritual thing. As you can see, I do not suffer that way at all. Um, <laughs> but I pray for a lot of you. <laughs> a lot of you come down and talk to me about your lives, and I love it. It's awesome, and God touches you, and it's amazing. But um, something I've begun to see a lot in, and I think it's just a human condition, is that we don't know, when, once we've sinned, once we realize that we have done something wrong, we don't know how to very quickly come back to God and make it right. And so what I'm going to talk to you about is what I believe is a bit of an ascetic practice in this house, which is this idea that we have to do penance. Now, some of you don't even know what that word means, but you're practicing it. And penance is this idea that I need to feel so bad for my sin that I actually have to show and prove that I feel bad. And so before I can just come to you, I have to go through some works or do some suffering. In the old days in the Catholic, in the old Catholic church, they would do things like they would uh, crawl upstairs on their bare knees until they were bleeding. They would beat themselves, literally, until they bled. They would do crazy things, like stand in dog pew, or rather horse manure, I suppose, more, for like three days. Um, just nonsense. In the, in the modern Catholic church, it's more like saying three Hail Marys and, you know, whatever. I, I haven't been Catholic ever, so I don't really know what they do. But it's this idea that you have to do something or you have to prove how bad you feel. That is not biblical. Are some of you getting that you practice penance? Are some of you understanding you didn't even know that you were doing this? And so 1 John 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not from everything except your brand of unrighteousness. Do you see how simple it is? And again, the issue is, is that I sin and then I don't know who God is. So I don't know how he's gonna respond. So I think lightning's gonna come out the sky and strike me if I tell him. Well, did it come out the sky and strike you when you were doing it? I feel like that would be a lot more dramatic if God just slammed you right then. Everybody around you would go, oh my gosh, they were sinning. I'm not doing that. <laughs> so why is he gonna do that when you confess it? You see, you belong to a good, good father. 
Some of us were lying in worship tonight. We were singing, that's who you are. That's who I am. No, not at all. God only thinks like that about the person next to me. Do you see how we practice penance? See, if your God loves you, and I want to say this, this is the lavish love of God. And sometimes I wish it wasn't like this because it makes it easier for us as pastors to just tell you you're a, you're a problem and you should get over yourself. But this is God. It's all God. It's not about us. Do you know what I have realized is that in sin, this is how it works. Before you sin, God has just got a big smile on his face. He thinks you're amazing. He sees you're in Jesus. After you sin, he's got a big smile on his face. He sees you as amazing. He sees you through Jesus. He has the crux. While you're sinning, that's him. You see, we have the problem. Sin isn't the problem because God has sorted that out. The problem is my thinking. The problem is the perceptions I hold that then keep me back from God. Because if in the middle of sinning, I suddenly remember, hold on, God is watching me and he just loves me. That's all he's doing there. He's not getting lightning bolts ready. He's not planning how the next 17 weeks of my life will be hell on earth. He's just loving me. I might just stop. I might just turn around and go, oh, wait, hold on. This really is a good father. This is fun, but it's really not something I want to do. We, we don't believe that. Some of you are not believing me as I'm telling you this, but this is God. See, otherwise Jesus would have to come back every year and get re-sacrificed. Are you getting this? See, either he's the lamb slain once and for all, either he's the lamb slain and it was enough and it is finished, or it isn't. There is no in-between. We believe that and then we live like we don't. So next time you sin, this is what you do. The second you realize you sin, you turn to God and you say, God, I just sinned and I'm sorry. I know you're taking me back. Help me do better. And more than that, God, show me where my thinking is faulty. Show me where I don't understand who you are in this space. Show me where I haven't let love come and bind all things together in harmony because that's who you are. Stop practicing penance. It does nothing for you. It most certainly does nothing for God. Why are you taking three months to repent when Jesus is standing there the second after? We need to learn how to love God and let him love us. And then just two things I want to talk about is that we read Scripture for fellowship, not for knowledge. So some of you need to start reading the Scripture so you can get a little bit of knowledge and then you can learn to fellowship. I'm teasing you. But we read Scripture for fellowship. That picture is the picture of the living Word of God. So the Bible is the only book in the whole of every library in the world that will read you back. <laughs> the Bible is the only book that knows you're there. It's the living Word of God. It's God-breathed. And it's not so we can then go and recite the names of the 12 disciples. Please learn them. It's not so we can go and then explain how Moses constructed the tabernacle from beginning to end. Nothing wrong with knowing that. But if I'm only reading Scripture for knowledge, where's the fellowship? See, when I've got to a point now, I've read the Bible so much that now when I read it, I, I have to let it touch my heart. <laughs> Otherwise, I will be bored. And so I read the Bible, and I've made a decision that every time I read the Bible, I'm going to try to write a note, even if it's like, ouch, that hurt. <laughs> Sometimes my notes are not profound. But the point is that I'm actually going to think about what is the Bible telling me? Where is it touching me? 
And you see, the fellowship is that the Bible brings comfort to my heart, but it's also a two-edged sword that cuts bone from marrow, that exposes attitudes. And so sometimes when I read the Bible, I've got to go through the pain before I get the comfort. And the pain is, oh my word, I do think like that. Oh my word, I just did that yesterday. Mm, I damaged that person. Mm. I've got to just recognize it. Can you see? Now there's a perfect thing to repent. God, I realize what I actually need to repent of is I was just arrogant in that moment. And I'm so sorry. And then the word comes to comfort me and says, yeah, but now God's with you. Now you can do better. Now you see that. Now you know that. There's endless opportunity to do better. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 8 says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge... It will pass away. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1 says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, but this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And can you see how the whole point of Colossians is about relationship with God? You could know everything. You could exegete the scriptures backwards, but if you don't know God, it says again in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you are just a clanging symbol. And it's all about relationships. So let's read our Bible to find God, to experience Him, to know Him. And obviously, knowledge can bring understanding. And I want to talk very quickly. Somebody in this house a couple of years ago moved away. And uh, you know how it is these days. We chatted on Facebook. We kept in touch with each other. But I mean, we weren't really close. But they didn't really get into another church. And part of their excuse was, well, we didn't find anything as good as every nation. Well, let me tell you, that's nonsense. The body of Christ is everywhere. Just find a church. Um, and the next thing on the, on the Facebook feed, I saw something like, I'm not eating bacon anymore because I want to please God. So my pastor senses went, <laughs> we're not allowed spidey senses, hey, Siv, but we can have pastor senses. But I'm going to be really honest, part of me was like, I just can't deal right now. I'm just <laughs> pretending like I didn't see that. The next day, there's something else, and eventually the Lord was just like, mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, God, I'll be the pastor. So um, having gone through some training on how to use um, uh, social media, I didn't then immediately jump onto his Facebook and confront him. I sent him a private message. Some of you need to hear this. Um, <laughs> so I sent him a private message, and, and I didn't jump into it. I just said, so bro, tell me about this bacon thing. You know, what's happening with bacon? Is it a health issue? You just don't like it? So he was like, no, no, you know, I met this guy and he, he goes to a church, it was some cult, I can't remember now. So again, pastor's sentence, but again, I'm just letting, you know, this, this is his life, so, you know. So, and he was telling me, you know, bacon is really bad and, and then he gave me all these scriptures about why it is. So I'm realizing this kid doesn't know his Bible. This kid has never read his Bible. If some cult member has got him in one conversation believing that bacon is bad. All it's telling me is you, you came to worship, you jumped around, you never read your Bible. So I'm saying, okay, so what is he saying? So he tells me, so we start chatting. I'm saying, well, you do realize that the New Testament is full of scriptures. In fact, every single letter of the New Bible of the New Testament says something about food because it was a huge issue in their day. Um, and basically what it says, if anybody tells you you can't, you just look them in the eye and say, Jesus set me free. So watch me eat the bacon. <laughs> Don't you think it's really awesome that God gave Christians bacon and Christmas? <laughs> Just by the way. So we start talking. I send him three very significant portions. I said to him, listen, just read these. Guess what? 
he doesn't read them. So I'm like, okay, you know, that's fine. You're going to get on your life. Three months later, I get a phone call from like across the ocean, deep panic. <gasps> There's a demonic presence in my room. So I'm like, oh, okay, that's real. He says, <laughs> you're not helping the story, Marsha. <laughs> no, it wasn't bacon. <laughs> but, but listen to this. Listen to this. He suddenly remembered the thing I'd sent him and he started reading the scriptures. And in a moment, he realized he was in error. And he repented and he said, God, I'm so sorry. There is no point in me giving up bacon. Not giving up bacon doesn't make me more or less spiritual. In fact, it just makes you dumb. But, because bacon's nice. But in a moment, he realized from the scripture that what he was doing was stupid. And of course, the discussion, I said, well, you know, let's rebuke that thing. And then I just said to him, listen, all I need to say to you is you've got to read your Bible. Knowing the word of God will keep you out of error. Just reading the Bible, you will be able to discern very quickly if somebody's speaking truth or not. When those persuasive arguments come, you'll remember, no, but that's not what the Bible says. And if you're not sure, phone somebody who has read their Bible and ask them. Google it, but just be careful what sides you look at. And then praying for fellowship, not just for experiences. Colossians 4 verse 2 says, continually steadfast in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. But you know, sometimes we come to worship and prayer and it's not for Jesus. It's because we want to have that feeling. Because we want the gift to come. God says eagerly desire gifts. I love prophecy. I love prophesying. It is so awesome. But what I've learned is that is a gift. It's not me. And it's all about Jesus. And I've sometimes seen in my life where I am not spending time in the word, where I'm not fellowshipping with Jesus, then suddenly I want to start prophesying because that feeling comes again. It's not about the feeling, it's about the relationship. And so we need to come to prayer for Jesus. You know, the beautiful thing about God is when we're around him, we will experience him. And sometimes those experiences will be amazing and awesome. But let him draw us into experiences. Let him come and surprise us and take us somewhere amazing rather than just us going there for that. I also want to say this about experiences, and we call this mysticism, and Paul warns the Colossians against it. Our God is, myst is mystical. Let's just get honest. <laughs> He's an all-consuming fire. That's a little mystical. He is invisible, but he speaks through burning bushes. Tad mystical. <laughs> I love how mystical our God is. What it means is that our understanding of God will never explain him. He has to exist beyond our understanding of him. He has to exist beyond our experience of him. Otherwise, he's not God. Am I right? And so there are definitely spaces where you can have experiences that aren't recorded in Scripture. But here's the problem. There are people out there who, because of their call, the call on their life, let me explain what I mean. Paul tells us about a man who went to the third heaven. He's actually speaking about himself. <laughs> Every Bible scholar agrees, that's Paul. He mentions it in a very vague way. What is the third heaven? Well, we don't know because he never told us. And so somewhere because Paul was called to be the apostle to all the Gentiles, <laughs> including you and I if we aren't Jewish, uh, and even if you are, he was also. But do you get what I'm saying? Because of his call, there was something in that experience that gave him the strength. When you read Paul's life, you realize there must have been something he saw, heard, experienced, that just he was comforted and encouraged in that. But he understood that that experience was out of his call, and it wasn't important for you and I to know. And so there are some people, because of their call, they will have massively mystical experiences. Yay! 
Not so yay is when they come back and then teach you how to have that experience, when that isn't a part of your call. And then that becomes a huge distraction. Then you start judging other Christians because they don't do that. Nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. As the head of the prophetic team in this church, I can only teach you how to have experiences that are in the Bible. I know better than to teach you experiences I've had that I can't find in the Bible. I just hold those and say, thank you, Lord, that was awesome. If you ever want to do that again, I'm totally game. (laughs) Do you get what I'm saying? But I don't go to Jesse and say, Jesse, you better have this experience. I don't know the fullness of her call. Only God does. So be careful of people who want to teach us experiences outside of the Bible. And then the last thing I want to say about this is that the whole mystical thing is, you know, when we seek God, the Bible is so clear, we will seek him, we will find him when we search for him with all our hearts, hey, from the book of Jeremiah. We've all got a cup with that scripture on it somewhere. But let me just tell you what that actually means. It means that when I seek God, I will find him. When I seek him, I will find him. Not what I want, not what I think he should be, not what I hope he should be. And the point of seeking God is exactly that, to find him. Can you see that everything Paul has written in Colossians is about relating to God and relating to others. That is the crux and the essence of Christianity. 